0: Welcome back to school, everyone that went back to school this week. I always found it very exciting to go back to school, actually. You you level up from the grade that you were in last year to a brand new grade, and you have a little more freedom and responsibility. You get to connect with your friends again, some that you didn't get to see all summer long. You find out who your new teachers are where your classroom is or classrooms are going to be. And the first couple of days, you don't really do anything anyway, so it's just kind of fun to hang out. And then the work begins. You get a couple of days of all that excitement, and then you're right back into the work. Some of you already have homework by this weekend. Now, as exciting as those first couple of days are when we go back to school, We know that we can't actually stay there. We can't live in those first couple of days and think that we're actually going to get an education. The education doesn't happen in the first few days. The education happens in the long, less than exciting time that takes place for the rest of the year. And the same is true in the Christian journey also. As exciting as baptisms are, our own baptism or watching other people's baptisms, as exciting as joining a new church can be, the thrill may last longer than just the first couple of days of going back to school, but eventually the same reality sinks in. The ordinariness of it all. But just like in school... It's in the ordinariness where most of our growth as Christians happens. To pursue constant excitement by trying to get reconverted over and over I grew up in a little bit in that tradition. There was like an altar call and you just kept going forward over and over and over again because maybe last time it didn't quite count. And so you just want to kind of re capture that over and over, or by getting baptized again and again and again, or by continually joining new churches all the time. Living like that is like trying to live in the first couple of days of going back to school perpetually. It may be exciting, but it ends up being quite shallow, and no real growth happens, because the growth happens in the long journey of the ordinary year. And because we recognize this, one of the things that the church tradition has reminded the church about is ordinary time, which we talked about even while we were singing. Traditionally, there are five seasons in the church calendar. And we have those represented by the banners up behind me. Each season has a color that goes with it. And the color green stands for ordinary time. And though we have all of these colors and we always put the whatever season that we're in, we put in the middle. You may notice that the green one in the middle is there the longest. Because six months out of the year in the church calendar is ordinary time. The other six months are shared by the other four banners. And it's a good reminder that even in our spiritual life, our church life, most of the journey is ordinary. And so how do we learn and how do we grow in the ordinary time if that's the majority of the time that we spend our lives in? The book of Acts tells the same story. In the book of Acts, we start with the birth of the church. But one of the things that is so wonderful about the book of Acts is that it doesn't bury the truth by only giving us the good stuff. You know, like some of those missionary letters that you get. They only tell you the good stuff because they have to keep their sponsors, and so they don't want to tell you any of the negative. But the book of Acts isn't like that. It gives you the good stuff, but it doesn't take very long before it gets into the dirty stuff as well. We've hardly stopped celebrating the monumental event at the beginning of the book of Acts with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church is born. 3,000 people are saved. An event that is called Pentecost. The event that we celebrate as a church, that's the one, the red banner there. The dove on it representing the Holy Spirit. The season of Pentecost... Interestingly, in the church year, just like in the book of Acts, what follows Pentecost is ordinary time. And that's what we now are beginning to get into. We've had this great beginning at the book of Acts. We have this beginning in the book of Acts where in chapter 2, after the church comes onto the scene, it says everyone shared everything in common This beautiful picture, which we're going to find out, even that quickly becomes a problem. No sooner are we out of Acts chapter 2 than we start seeing people dropping dead in church for lying. The church being persecuted. And in today's passage, issues of racism and church roles becoming an issue and a problem. And we're only into Acts chapter 6. We're starting to get into the ordinary times, the muck and the dirt and the problems. But interesting, it's in those ordinary times and it's in those problems that depending on our orientation of being willing to enter into the ordinary times and hear what God's doing, it's in those times where most of our growth can happen. And so, this is where we're now starting to enter. Acts chapter 6. Begins with these words. As the believers rapidly multiplied. What, what a great few words there. We've got these first few chapters. And then as the believers rapidly multiplied. And then notice the very next words after that in, in verse 1 of chapter 6. As the believers rapidly multiplied. There were rumblings of discontent. What, what a, a juxtaposed sentence. In the same sentence, the believers are rapidly multiplying and there were rumblings of discontent. The ESV translates it, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. Unfortunately, complaining has been a persistent problem with God's people from as far back as you can remember. Just have to reread the story of Exodus to recognize how often God's people complain. In fact, these words, once more the people complained against Moses and the Lord, is a continual refrain throughout, refrain throughout the Exodus story. Grumbling and complaining is a sin that Paul deals with over and over in his letters when he is writing to the churches. And complaining is also the top reason why a number of my friends who've gone into ministry are no longer in pastoral ministry today. They, they just couldn't take the complaining. Now, I'm fortunate that that never happens here at Bethany. And so... One of the things I've done, because I obviously need to experience these things as well, is I told you that this summer I, I took a refing course and I got certified and I refed my first two games yesterday. So I'm now a certified ref and I'll be refing. So in my spare time because it's not happening at our church. In my spare time, I'm trying to put myself into situations where people will hate me and complain about me and tell me that everything I'm doing is wrong and yell at me because, you know, it's always the ref's fault. So that's what I'm doing in my spare time, just to give myself some of that experience. And it's here in Acts chapter 6 as well. It doesn't seem to matter if the church is struggling or if the church is bursting at the seams. No matter what happens, there's rumbling and discontent and complaints arose. Now, as we read on in Acts chapter 6, it tells us what the issue was. Why were people complaining? It goes on to say, because the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. Now, remember, this is, this is early after the Holy Spirit's come and the church has been born. And already you've got the Greek-speaking believers, they're complaining about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of the food. Now, what we then see is a strong example of leadership when this complaint is brought before the disciples. Because the next verse says, "...so the twelve call the meeting of all the believers." to discuss this, to look into this. There's a couple of things that's so important to recognize about this. And the first is that the disciples got together and they investigated this complaint. Because, you see, sometimes we are very quick when we hear something to jump in right away and try to fix things. Only to realize that we are creating more of a problem. Because there's always two sides to a story. And when we neglect to hear both sides and when we neglect to go through the right channels, it just makes more of a mess of things. And so the disciples, this complaint comes before them, and they don't just immediately try to fix things. They call a meeting, and they look into things. Because many times, the complaints that come are simply untrue. And therefore, there's nothing to be dealt with some of the easiest ones to deal with are the kinds of complaints where somebody comes up to you and says pastor Steph nobody likes the way that we're doing fill in the blank the reason that that is so easy is because all you have to do is find one person that does like it and you've proved the person to be untrue that's not a true complaint because obviously not everybody dislikes it um, there are other ones. Uh, there are complaints that are much more vague, like some people are saying complaint. You've heard that one before, the some people are saying complaint, which usually means me, myself, and I, and a couple of family members and friends don't like this. That's what the everyone, some people are saying complaint. And so complaints need to be verified as, are they true? That's the first thing that needs to be looked into. Are this, Is this a legitimate complaint? Is it true? Now, once you've done that, you've called a meeting and you've looked into that, once you've discovered, let's say it is true, even then, it doesn't mean something should be done about it. Because some complaints, even if proven to be true, even if proven to be true by a vast majority of people, are still wrong complaints. The church does not build its doctrine and practices around a democratic vote. That's not how it works in church. And so it may be true that a large majority of people are complaining that visitors are taking their parking stalls on Sunday morning, and so they bring that before you. But you see, a complaint like that shouldn't be entertained. In fact, what should be entertained in a complaint like that is to tell the complainers that they need to remember that they are to put others before themselves. That Christ has called us to always put others before themselves. And so in that situation, the complainers need to be educated on more Christian behavior. But then there are complaints, like this one in Acts here, that are true and also valid. There are complaints that are true and valid. And in those cases, something has to be done about it. So when the disciples got together and they looked into this, they discovered this is a true complaint, it's really happening, and it's a valid complaint. How do they know if a complaint is valid or invalid? A complaint is valid when it strikes at the heart of the gospel. When allowing something to continue directly affects the good news message of Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening in this case. The Greek widows were being neglected. They were being discriminated against. What was happening is that the Jewish widows were be- were given special status. They were the ones that were be- given the majority of the food that was being distributed and as we saw with the speaking in tongues when the Holy Spirit came, we learned. From Jesus' message and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and people miraculously speaking in tongues, that the very message of Jesus Christ is that now Jews and Gentiles are equally justified before God as one family of Abraham. That's the good news message that in Jesus Christ, all people are equally justified. Jew, Gentile, or any other race, they're equally justified before God and created and made into the forgiven family of Abraham. And if that's the good news message, issues of favoritism or racism, like what was happening here, strike at the truth Of the message. If you allow things like that to happen, you compromise the message. That's when things fall into a category we call heresy. It distorts the very essence of the message. And that's why this is not something that could be ignored. This is the same message that Paul writes about in Galatians and Romans that we are now one family before God so how can there then be discrimination in things like serving widows the individualistic salvation message that has unfortunately crept up in a much of north american christianity where it's all about just me getting saved in a personal relationship with jesus has then allowed things To go on where people can claim to have a relationship with Jesus. And yet at the same time in our history, in America particularly, hold slaves. Or segregate blacks to the back of the bus. Or refuse to send their kids to the same school as kids of another color. That would be, the Apostle Paul wouldn't even recognize that message as the same message that he was preaching. He'd say, that's not Christianity. You cannot have a solo, personal relationship with Jesus Christ because you prayed some prayer and then have issues like racism and favoritism and and ostracizing other cultures be in the same package together. Because the message of the gospel is about a new people just as much as it's about a new walk with God. That's why when talking about communion... And Paul talks about examining ourselves. We often make the mistake, again, of reading it in our Western individualistic eyes. Examine yourself. Well, obviously, Paul must be talking about me as an individual. And so I go into a solitude time into myself, and I begin to kind of do this introspective thing. But that's a modern Western reading. When Paul says examine yourself, he's speaking corporately. Paul is much more thinking, his letters are much more about the body of Christ. And that's one of the things we Westerners need to get into our mind as we reread Scripture. It's not about me as much as it's about the community. So when Paul says, examine yourself, he says, examine yourself corporately. And that's why in the 1 Corinthians context, when he talks about examining yourself, he says there, interestingly... That once again, food was being unequally distributed. Distributed, that's the word. Distributed. He was saying that the people that are rich, they're coming to church first. They're eating up all the food. And when the poor comes, they're being neglected. They're being pushed off to the sideline. No foods left. Um, These communion love feast services that you're having are building walls between the rich and the poor. And then he goes on to say, examine yourself before you partake of these meals together. If that's what's going on and you're ostracizing yourself between rich or poor or in a context of of slave or free or a context of Jew and Gentile, he's saying that what you're doing is a mockery. How can you call it communion, common union, when there's no common union happening? It's not about just you and God. Tune everybody else out It's about looking around at everybody else and saying we are one family together. That's why we eat together. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why the disciples found this issue something they couldn't ignore. Something that had to be addressed. Because Jesus came So that there is no longer barriers between us and God and between us and one another. And when that happens in the church, like in this food distribution, something needs to be done. So that once again, the message of Jesus is being upheld front and center. It's why at Bethany, our mission statement is, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to reach out cross-culturally. Winning, equipping, and empowering people for ministry. We have emphasized the desire to become cross-cultural. That a lot of times can be harder to do church that way. It's very easy to, to do church and just hang out with people that are just like you. That's even a a church growth strategy. Target a certain particular people group and go after them, and it can work because then you can just cater everything to that type of person. But it seems to go against the grain of the gospel. Again, if it was all about pragmatics, then just do it. But if it's about right biblical teaching and theology, you got to go through the tough, ordinary times. That God has called us to be a multicultural people who are one. In Christ, and because we continually need to practice becoming this, one of the things that we want to offer you as a church, we're bringing in a guest speaker in a few weeks. Uh, You can see the information up there; it's on the website, it's in the bulletin as well. On October fourth and fifth, Friday evening and Saturday morning, we are going to be talking about with the guest speaker the topic of reaching the global community living in our community. And interesting, a lot of what is even going to be talked about is just things like sharing meals together. And this is not only an important topic for reaching out to those that don't know know Jesus that are different from us in our community, but even to help us understand each other. We look around our congregation, we see people from different backgrounds. It can help so much if we can begin to understand each other's differences in a way that we can learn, accept, and come together as one people. So I want to strongly encourage you to sign up for that. On the Friday night, there's programs for kids, and so you don't even have to worry about, worry about the child care. And then the Saturday morning, it's just, just the morning, you've got the rest of your day, and it's just going to be a great seminar right here in our own church to talk about how we can do this better, to be a more mission-minded Gospel centered church that puts others and often others that are very different than us ahead of ourselves. But that said, there was also another issue that the disciples had to deal with here in Acts chapter 6. And this issue was also one that struck at the heart of the gospel. We, we have a good pattern here with the disciples not getting sidetracked by secondary issues. A lot of times we can get caught up in things that don't really matter. It uses up so much of our time or energy for the real me- mission that we need to do. But the disciples didn't allow themselves to be pulled into that. But they were pulled into things that mattered. Things that dealt with the essence of Jesus' message. And so racism was one of them. The other one was about how the church functions in regards to its roles. So we saw the little video before the message, and the person's in in the little parable video there, body not working properly. Uh, a certain part of the body sort of taking over everything else and seeing how the stumbling and falling all over the place. And what Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this, is the church isn't to look like that. Every part needs to do its part, and when it's working together, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, When it's not working together, uh, not only can it be silly and offensive, but it can be destructive, as we saw with some of the things that happened to the individual. And so what goes on is when they recognize that this was a problem and racism was an issue in the church, it needed to be dealt with, it says the 12 called a meeting of the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom, We will give them this responsibility, and then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. See, the reason this also is so important to the essence of the gospel is because roles mean that we're all part of the church. And the emphasis in Scripture is the body the church. So by upholding this, the disciples maintain that it's not about them or other people. It's ultimately about the church that is the body. Again, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. From the earliest times, just as we see today, there's a tendency for Christians to make pastors or leaders into sort of celebrity pastors or saviors. And this, interestingly, causes people to, in time, always become disappointed in their pastors because eventually they're not going to live up to your expectations. The disciples would have encouraged this if they would have jumped in and just immediately been the savior of this issue and started to distribute food. Instead, the disciples backed away and said, yes, this is a legitimate problem, but it's not a problem that we're going to directly solve. You see, sometimes we have these expectations of someone who can do everything, the pastor as teacher who can expound deep theological truths in a simple enough way that you can put it on a fridge magnet. And every week their delivery competes with the best TED Talk. They are a strong, convicted, visionary leader, but meek and mild and recognizing that everyone's ideas are better than their own. They are Dr. Phil in the counseling office. They are a chaplain who is constantly out and about visiting at hospitals and seeing the shut-ins while spending ample amounts of time in solitude studying and praying. They are regularly out in their community evangelizing the neighborhood, but not neglecting the believers in their own church. They're comfortable with seniors, and they're comfortable with teenagers, and they involve themselves with the kids' programs once they finish up with the Wednesday night men's Bible study. And of course, they do all this as soon as they get back from their missions trip to Africa, all the while keeping their family in perfect order. Now, of course, no one person expects all of this of their pastor. But if every individual in the church expects one of these things from their pastor, it collectively amounts to the same thing. The disciples wanted to make sure this kind of thinking didn't happen. Not because it's unhealthy for them, although it is unhealthy for them if they would have went down this way, but because it is unhealthy for the church body. For ministry then becomes the work of the pastor. And ministry is the work of the people. It's an important thing to remember. That's what the word liturgy means too, the work of the people. It's the church, not the pastor, who is the body of Christ. This same problem happened in Moses' day after the people were set free from Egypt crossed the Red Sea, got to the other side. We then read in Exodus 18, the next day Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, and what a great father-in-law this is. Because a lot of times, the mentality is, uh, Moses doing all this stuff from morning to evening, especially in our very driven, work-oriented culture, nowadays, if people see individuals doing that, they come up to them and say, wow, how admirable you are. What an amazing person you are. But that's not what Moses' father-in-law said. Instead, Moses' father-in-law came before him and says, what are you really trying to accomplish here? Talk about a poke in the ego. Why are you trying to do all of this alone? Well, everyone stands around you from morning to evening. Moses, you're becoming the center of attention. Everyone's standing around you. Everybody's coming to you. What are you trying to accomplish? This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. Notice how the emphasis here is it's not good not only because... Psychologically, this is the route to burnout and all those types of things. But it's also not good because it's about pointing people to God. And if everyone's standing around you, Moses, looking for direction from you, and you are the center of everything, this isn't good. You're going to wear yourself out. (laughs) And the people, too. This job is too heavy a burden, For you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me. And let me give you a word of advice. And may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God. Bringing their disputes to him. In other words. If you are to represent the people before God. Bringing the people's disputes before God. That's called prayer. That's intercession. And then he goes on and says. Teach them God's decrees. And give them his instructions, show the people how to conduct their lives, but select from all the people some capable, honest men whom, who fear God and hate bribes. To me, it seems obvious that when the disciples were brought with the problem that they were brought before in Acts chapter 6, that this was immediately where their minds must have gone to. Because it almost says the same thing. Moses, you need to dedicate yourself to prayer, bringing the people before God, interceding, and teach them God's decrees. That's your job, Moses. Intercession and teach the people God's decrees. Give them instruction. And then select people to do the other work. What did the disciples say? They said we need to dedicate ourselves to prayer and to teaching God's word and then they selected other people to do the other work. It's not that running a food program is bad. That's not what the scripture's saying. That's not meant to be heard in a negative derogatory way. The food program did need to happen. Or else the disciples would have just ignored it and said, this is not necessary. It did need to happen. They were even clear that they needed to appoint wise people of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit. Just like Moses was supposed to appoint honest people. People who fear God. People who hate bribes. So, these were important things. They needed to happen. You needed to put people that were godly and spiritual in charge of these things. And so the issue isn't one of importance, but of the body. The body is made up of many parts. Some preach, some pray, some administrate, some lead, some sing, some create, some are hospitable. On and on it goes. The issue was to keep the church the church. The focus becomes the church, Christ's body, not on the Savior pastor or just as equally the scapegoat pastor. The Savior pastor who everything for the salvation of the church depends on him or the scapegoat pastor where everything that go- has gone wrong in the church is blamed on him. The, the, the disciples are saying there's no place for that in the church. It's about the body. We do this together, we're a team. Just before the Reformation, things in the church had gotten to the point where everything that was done depended on the priest. Even praying, you did that through the priest. Even reading scripture, you did that through the priest. Everything was done through the priest. And in time, what came with that is that that was the highest calling and everything else was kind of second class. One of the things that the reformers reminded the church of was the concept of the priesthood of all believers, that we are all priests, there's not just one priest, we're all priests, we all are people that can come before God, pray, read scripture, and that all of the different things that we do when done to the glory of God are spiritual and important. Martin Luther even went so far as to say that when a man changes his child's diaper and does it to the glory of God. I'm not sure how you do that to the glory of God, but obviously it can be done to the glory of God. I also appreciate the fact that Martin Luther actually said when the man does that. Good for Luther. That means he changed diapers. He didn't just leave it up to his wife to do that. Um, and, and what he was saying is that things like changing a child's diaper, being a good father, mother the employment that you have or you're volunteering in your community is just as holy as preaching and teaching. In fact, if the preaching and teaching is hypo- is, is hypocritical, it's even more holy. It's not about the roles, but it's about functioning as a body. That's important. See, we fall into the same danger today, this same pre-Reformation danger today when as I know from my own ministry, we feel that a hospital visit from anybody else other than the pastor is somehow not valid. Some people even go so far as if a pastor does visit them, but it's not the senior pastor, it's not valid. Uh, what we begin to find here is that we're going right back into the pre-Reformation times as somehow certain pastors with certain status are extra-holy and that their special touch or their special visitation is sort of more of a blessing. It's, it's like when, and I know sometimes this is just done as, you know, the token honor thing. But it's kind of like when us pastors were invited over f- to a meal for a, 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 a other people's house. And then they always, when it comes to grace, they turn to the pastor. And I'm like, you know, I don't have any, any closer connection with God than you do. I have a certain role in the church, you have a certain role in the church, and your prayers are just as legitimate as mine. Now, I know sometimes it's just to honor the pastor that's there and that, but again, we got to think through at times, what are we communicating? What are we saying? Are we elevating certain roles as higher than other roles? In fact, the truth is that a lot of non-clergy are better at visitation than clergy are. It's also silly and unbiblical to comp- compare clergy to each other because we all have different personalities. That's what 1 Corinthians is also about. Oh, I like this pastor better. I like that pastor better. Paul And, and Paul, uh, again, says there should be no place for that in the church. Some pastors will be better at this. Some pastors will be better at that. Some pastors will be better at that. That's just the way it is. They're all going to have their strengths and weaknesses. We work together. It's the same with the non-clergy. That we shouldn't be comparing each other like, well, how come so-and-so doesn't invite people over to their house as much as I do, and they don't... Well, maybe they don't have the gift of hospitality that you do. So there's no room for comparison. We have different roles, different abilities. And a healthy church is a church where everyone plays their role. There's nothing more annoying when I coach soccer than, let's say, the uh, defense isn't doing very well, And I've had I've had to do this many times. And one of my forwards runs all the way back to try to help the defense out. I don't know how many times I've had to, you know, sub these kids off and I say to them, running back and helping the defense when they're they're in trouble does not help the team. Because you run back to help them. Who do they pass it to now? If, if, if you start playing that way, you might as well go back to four-year-old soccer. Remember four-year-old soccer? The ball goes this way, the entire team goes that way. And then the ball goes this way, the entire... It, it's terrible. You have to play your position, and sometimes you have to be patient and wait for some of those other positions to figure out what's going on so that when they do, they have someone to pass it to. So the mentality is thinking as a team. See, if we think as individuals, we think they're in trouble. I should do something to help them. But if we think as a team, then we think I need to keep my position so that I'm ready for when the past comes. We need to think that way as a church as well. And so I want to encourage you at Bethany to keep discovering where your role is. Obviously, my primary role here is as preacher and teacher, and so I've tried through my years here and again this year to give ample opportunities of that. I'm the one that does most of the messages on Sunday morning and helps Derek put the service together. Uh, that's why this year I will be leading two men's studies on Wednesday nights. And I just this is something I'm so excited about. I was going to be leading one men's study on Wednesday nights every two Wednesdays. There have been so many men that have signed up that I'm now splitting it into two classes because I want them to be small enough for some good discussion. So one group's going to be meeting from, on the first and third Wednesdays of the month, and the other group's going to be meeting on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month. So for all of you guys that are signing up and you still can sign up, this week I will send you the information of which group that I put you in. But that's exciting. Also, Friday nights we'll be doing a, a class on the Trinity Such a foundational doctrine to help us understand more of who God is, who his character is. Because if we don't get God's character right, everything else goes out the window. If we have wrong ideas of who God is, then everything else we do and say and act uh, misses the target. And so we're going to spend some time on Friday nights uh, working through the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, My wife's also going to be leading a class on how to read the Bible, how to understand the different genres of Scripture. Uh, Sunday mornings now uh, at at, uh, 9 o'clock, we had our first one today. People are gathering together for prayer, and I'm leading some different prayer times. I encourage you to be part of those things. Those are the ways that I can serve you as your pastor in my role. There are many ways that you can serve this church too. There are a lot of people right now that are having to miss this service and some of them told me they're gonna even listen to this sermon later this week online because right now there's a crew in the kitchen that's getting our barbecue for after the service ready and they're blessing us and ministering to us and even sacrificing of their time so that they could be in there so that after this we can fellowship. There are people right now teaching our children There are many roles. We've got ushers. We've got all kinds of people playing their part in the community, here and outside. See, in Acts 6, the disciples knew the importance of this complaint. It was true, it was valid, it was legitimate, because it had to do with the core of Christ's mission. It wasn't a non-essential. It wasn't people complaining about the fact that they didn't like the centerpieces or whether they should have a trio or a quartet that's singing. It was about things that mattered that were central to Christ's mission. It was about Jesus' fulfilled Old Testament promise that his call to save people from all nations to be part of the one forgiven Abraham family had now come in Christ and the Holy Spirit, and was now beginning to be lived out. And therefore, there is no place in that community for favoritism or racism. But equally, the disciples knew the danger of people elevating certain roles and in people into places of almost godlike stature. And so they purposely limited their work to avoid creating that kind of special class of people. And they said, no, we have a role. Other people have a role. And that is going to protect the community to keep Christ at the center and the community as the body rather than beginning to make idols out of people. These are what we're being dealt with in this first few verses of Acts chapter 6 and why it was so important. We're one body. Being Brazilian or Egyptian Gives you no special status in the family. Just as preaching or administrating a food program gives you no special status. It's also important to limit your role and not try to do and fix everything because there's no Savior but Jesus. It's the whole church, not celebrity pastors. Or charter members who are the body of Christ. It's the whole church. That is why the disciples made such a big deal about this in Acts chapter 6. And it's going to take the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, the rest of the New Testament letters and all that comes following this. To hammer out the implications of it. Because though it is true and we get it at one level it's really hard to put into practice. And most of the New Testament is about hammering this home over and over and over again and constantly reminding the church that this body of Christ, forgiven Abraham's people, are who we are meant to be and calling us back to that again and again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have so much patience with us and that alone should encourage us to have so much patience with one another. Help us, Lord, to live out the truth of this. To be a church family that keeps Christ at the center and all the things that divide us. May we see they those things as things that can strengthen us when we work together with them and live out who you've called us to be. Because, Lord, it is when we are living that out that those that do not know you best see you. You are a God who is triune. That means you were a God who is three but one. You're a God who is diversified but one. And you have made us in your image and have restored us to reflect that triune image. Diversified but one. It goes right to your character. Amen.